And thank you so much for that. Um, it's such a beautiful song because uh, we never know what life holds. And sometimes we just get sideswiped. And it's encouraging to know that God has a word for us in every season of our lives. Um, just for where we're at. Uh, let's pray one more time before we get into the word. I want to praise you, Lord, as uh, the one who is miraculously, miraculously um, kept our eardrums intact today, but also have brought us to your house to praise and to, to meditate on your word. As we uh, dive in, we pray that we'd have your eyes, your heart, your ears, your mind to become more like you. And to go out into the world as shining lights of hope and sharing the gospel message that this is not all there is, but that there is a land far beyond this one that is glorious and that will one day be brought down to this earth to purify it of all that was wrong and all that was destructive and usher in an eternity of peace and love all through the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this time to meditate on something so wonderful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So do we have my face mic working yet? Probably need to press the button, don't I? That was on my mind. There's an old story about a wise man living on one of China's vast frontiers. One day, for no apparent reason... A young, his, young, his young son's horse ran away and was taken by nomads far across the border, never to be seen again, or so they thought. Everyone tried to offer consolation for the man's bad fortune, but his father, a wise man, said, What makes you so sure this is not a blessing? Months later, his horse returned, bringing with her a magnificent stallion. This time, everyone was full of congratulations for the son's good fortune. But now, his father said, what makes you so sure? <laughs> this isn't a disaster. Their household was made richer by his fine horse. The son loved to ride, but one day he fell off his horse and broke his hip. But his father said something different than what everybody else was saying. This village, once again, came to offer their consolation for this bad luck. And as the father comes, he says, what makes you so sure this is not a blessing? A year later, nomads invaded across the border, and every able-bodied man was required to take up his bow and go into battle. The Chinese families living on the border lost nine of every ten men. Only because the son was lame did father and son survive to take care of each other. What appeared like a blessing and success has often turned out to be a terrible thing. Successes can turn out to be a terrible thing, whereas things that were very negative, terrible events often turn out to be rich blessings. 
this, uh, this day, if you turn on the news, you'll find it saturated with stories not only of what's happening in the Middle East, but what's happening all over the place. And if you pause, anyone in the world can just look within to their own lives and see there's things that are upset. Maybe there's little things of chaos, disappointment, fear, and anxieties. This world has its tribulations, right? This world has its persecutions. This world has the inescapable reality that we will go through dark times. And many try to point to a light. They point to all sorts of things in this world. But Jesus points us to himself. He says, fear not. Why? Because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Look to the great I am. The only one who could say such a radical thing. I've overcome the world and all that happens within this ecosystem for good and bad. I've titled my sermon today, Going Through the Wall, Letting Go of Power and Control. Because the very existence of humanity depends on the control of only one. The power of only one. And that is our creator, Jesus Christ. Apart from that one, there is chaos and there is death. And that's what we see. In going through our, our Christian experience, we are, look, we are turned to look at Christ at new angles, to learn new things about him. Just like we're getting to know uh, our friends. You, you have new experiences with them, and you learn new things about them with each new experience. If you only mess up in one setting, one situation, does it still off? Podium. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so I was just loud then. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. Um, where was I? Yes. If we met somebody and only met them in one setting, you're not going to learn a lot about them. The people who are closest to you have been through it with you, right? They've seen you at your worst and at your best, and you've got done fun things together, hard things together, ministry together. Those are the ones that you can say you really understand. Is that going to have the the next slide, which gives a six-stage kind of outline of what Christian development looks like. We all start initially with a life-changing awareness of God, stage one right there at the top, where suddenly we become more aware of his voice, of his providence, of his will, and it transitions us next into discipleship, where we start learning how do we study our Bibles, how do we pray, how do we share our faith, and we start to practice these things in the third stage, we begin serving. Now it's not just about being spiritually fed. We're able to move into a place of introducing people to Jesus to be fed. And then you face a wall where all your experience with Jesus up to this point was just this growing, flowing, this feeding, giving, and then suddenly it seems like it's not working as it used to. It seems like God's voice is not as loud. It seems like his providence is not as clear. 
Seems like his promises are not as sure, and we hit this wall. Now, what is a wall? Can I have you go to the next slide for me? For most of us, the wall appears through a crisis that turns our world upside down. It comes, perhaps, through a divorce, a job loss, the death of a close friend or family member, a cancer diagnosis, a disillusioning church experience, a betrayal, a shattered dream, a wayward child, a car accident, an inability to get pregnant, a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled, a dryness or a loss of joy in our relationship with God. We question ourselves, God, the church. We discover for the first time that our faith doesn't appear to be working as it used to. We don't know exactly where God is moving what he's doing, where he's going, and how he is getting us there. When will this be over? When will this season end? This is a wall. It's not just a passing trial that you need to jump over. This is a wall you must go through. And how you approach these experiences will determine the outcome. If you approach them from a place of this is a chance to grow and deepen my faith, you'll be walking in that path. But if it's, a, if it's a response of, I don't know what to do, I'm going to sit here, and I'm just going to sit in it. It's too hard. I don't want to face the next step. That's where you will be, and you will stop directly in that place where you sat down. I learned something about that kind of reaction when I was initially pastoring, I graduated Walla Walla University, and after four years of being in a rich academic spiritual environment, and now I'm just on my own, no friends, no family, it was kind of jarring. I had been ushered into a season of my faith where I wasn't clear on what God was saying or where he was leading. And unfortunately, my, my, uh, my response was to sit and listen and listen and listen and listen and wait and wait and wait and wait. Now, there is a time for waiting, but this was not a waiting in faith. This was a waiting in fear. This was a waiting in, I don't know. And so God had to carry me through that. And the, what I started seeing in sermons, in my devotions, in songs, Christian songs, was this message, trust and obey. Trust and go walking with Jesus into the dark, into the unknown, because he knows what's next. Where I have to go, he's already been. So walk. That was the message that pulled me out of that and, and anchored me in faith in a way that brought so much joy, so much relief. There was no more concern about things going wrong or whatever, me doing the, making the wrong decision. All was left up to God, and I was just to trust and obey. So we face walls at different times. Like, uh, if you could go back one slide again, a couple slides, sorry, right there. Just want to go through the remaining stages. This wall, this journey, is a journey inward of reflection, 
of where I'm at with Jesus. It's the story of any believer throughout the whole Bible. A story of introspection and reflection on Jesus. You notice that in this kind of journey, it makes us ask new questions of Jesus. New questions of ourselves, which is going to lead to new answers. And as we're in this kind of reevaluation phase, our ears grow way open to the Lord. And we're ready for new life. We're ready for something different. We're ready for God to do something we never would have even imagined. And it's at that point that we will take responsibility by bringing our unique needs to be met in unique ways by Jesus. God compels us into this journey that can be painful. It can be hard having to face traumas or fears. He brings us into it because it will eventually lead to a breaking of that wall and that will be all behind you. And you can walk in deeper freedom. And most importantly, it's, it's to remember that God is walking with us through this wall. Through this, this, uh, this bewildering experience. Stage five is the journey outward. Having passed through this crisis of faith and an intense inner journey necessary to go through that wall... We begin once again to move outward to do for God. We may do some of the same active external activities we did before, like giving in leadership and serving and initiating acts of good mercy towards people in the community. The difference is that now we give out a new grounded center of ourselves in God, a lesser dependence on temporary man-made things and a deeper dependence centering on God. We have rediscovered God's profound, deep, accepting love for us. A deep inner stillness now begins to characterize our work for God. Which leads us to six. Stage six is when we are transformed into love. God continually sends events, or he allows events and circumstances, people, and even books into our lives to keep us moving forward on our journeys. He is determined to complete the good work he began in you, whether it's comfortable or not. His goal, in the language of John Wesley, is that we be made perfect in love, that Christ's love becomes our love both toward God and others. We realize love truly is the beginning and the end. By this stage, the perfect love of God has driven out all fear. He's broken through. He's driven all the fear out. And the whole of our spiritual lives is finally about surrender and obedience to God's perfect will. You're not hanging on to anything. You're not holding on to something other than Jesus. You've let it go. And now it's just to yield and let Christ take you on a new journey. And so we go through these stages. It's a bit... Maybe not necessarily like a circle, but walls come up various times in our lives. But how we approach them is important. We'll go to the next slide. 
Um, we'll be talking in a moment about seven deadly spiritual imperfections that these dark nights of the soul cleanse us and purge us of. But first, I want to take us to Luke 4. Luke 4. Luke 4. So leading up to this, Jesus had been on a very unique experience of obscurity and silence. For 30 years, he was just Jesus. Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary. Doing the carpentry business and kind things for the neighborhood. And people love Jesus, but, you know, he was just that neighborhood kid down the road. Obscure? Silent. Not what most people in his time would have expected the Messiah to look like. They were all expecting one thing. If God becomes human, you would expect the whole glory and the power to be just clearly, overwhelmingly evident. And yet we see obscurity. And so we finally come to this point in Jesus' life where God is ready to do something new. And so he passes by John the Baptist and he is, asks him to baptize him. And John is in his own journey, right? And he's like, well, I'm not ready for this. I don't, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandal. But God's doing something new in John's life too. And the baptism happens. The Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus. And the Father speaks those beautiful words. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Another step in Jesus' walk, faith walk. He's an example to us, right? not all, you know, just this perfect thing. He, part of our journey is receiving God's words over us. But the very next thing is what we find in Luke 4, 1. Let's read. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Pause. Into the wilderness, a place of dryness, loneliness, isolation. But who led him there? The Holy Spirit led him to the wilderness. And we come to verse 2. that gives us the exact amount of time he spent out there. Being tempted for how many days? Now, where else have you heard the number 40 in the Bible? Uh-huh. Moses? Israel in the wilderness? The flood? 40 is an important number. What happens in each of these stories during this 40-day period? There is a purging, a cleansing of what is destructive and chaotic in people's lives, what drags people down, what numbs them to the things of God. It's a purging. Israel didn't have to spend the 40 years in the wilderness, right? That was never actually the plan. Noah was never, have to spend, was never supposed to spend 40 days in an ark. It was never the plan to destroy the world. But it happened because something grew that needed to be cut down. Otherwise, it would have cut down his people and Satan would have ruled. He had to end the thing before it ended his people. And that's what a purging is all about. It's like a doctor removing the gangrenous leg of the Civil War soldier with the unhygienic tools and everything. It's got to go or the soldier will go. It's one or the other. 
And so 40 is a time of reconsecration and purification. And this is what Jesus is about to experience. I want to go on to the second half of verse 2. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. He oriented himself in this experience in a very intentional way. He said, I'm not going to be going back into town to get food. I'm not bringing a big bag of food with me. This was a time solely to open his heart wide open to whatever God wanted to say. And it's in fasting that the soul becomes more sensitive to God. You know, when you feel those hunger pangs, it's also you becoming more sensitive to what goes on in here and in here. You can't ignore it. It all kind of just starts to come up together in fasting and prayer. And so Jesus enters his own wilderness experience. And the devil comes and tries to tear him down and mock and destroy what the Father had planned for, for Jesus. But Jesus' response was to be anchored in the word of God, to trust and obey. He just said, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And he carried on, and he was strengthened, and that trial was passed. Now, we know Jesus was, had no imperfections to be cleansed of, right? That's not exactly what was happening for him. But there was a time for him to know, get very acquainted with his father in a very special way. And the Bible doesn't give details about that. But certainly, that is what was happening. As uh, we see various times throughout Jesus' life, he'd go off by himself to spend time with God, away from the crowd and the busyness and the loud voices. And that was rejuvenating for him. So let's, go, let's look at a few of the deadly spiritual imperfections that are destroyed in this process. There's a few we got up here. Pride, avarice, luxury, wealth, spiritual gluttony, spiritual envy, and sloth. Now these are all unique in their own way. But they're all equally destructive. And they equally get in the way of both our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And in the same way that these, these danger signs are very specific about what's ahead that you want to avoid, the Bible puts a big danger sign over these habits and these internal orientations. And it says, look out. I want to take a moment to uh, just look at some of these signs. The first one says, danger, electrical hazard. Why is that dangerous? Because our bodies cannot handle, handle an electrical, strong electrical voltage. It will kill us. Next, danger, flammable liquids. Well, they're just flammable. They're not on fire already, right? What's the danger? Well, if you're not careful and you have a flame, you bring those two things together and boom. It doesn't look dangerous, but in the right situation, when you bring the wrong thing into that situation, it explodes. Next, danger, fall hazard. You might be confident in your ability to walk. You might be confident, but this is a new circumstance. You get the banana peel on the ground, or something slippery, and you fall. And the last one, danger, authorized personnel only. I think that one especially um, relates to our Christian walk, because there are things God said he would do that we could never do. And he says, authorized personnel only. Only I get to know X, Y, Z. 
Only I get to, I, only I'm capable of accomplishing X, Y, Z. And when we just try to take a little bit of that responsibility, it brings stress and strain, control, and all sorts of negative things. Um, so these things are the bearer of much pain. And Jesus has put these big signs on them to avoid them. And I'd like to just describe them in a little bit of detail. Pride. What is purged of pride? Well, when people have a tendency to condemn others and become impatient with their faults, they are very selective in who can teach them. This dark night of the soul, this wall, purges those thoughts and behaviors. Avarice. When someone's discontent with the spirituality God gives them, they never have enough learning, are always reading many books, rather than growing in poverty of spirit and the inner life with Jesus. That is cleansed, and the eyes go upward to Jesus. Luxury. They take more pleasure in the spiritual blessings of God than God himself. We discover that the gifts of God are not nearly as important as his presence in our life. And we learn to live on solely dependence of his presence. Wrath. People are, who are easily irritated, lacking sweetness, and have little patience to wait on God. And there's no other option in this wall state of life but to let go of these things. Spiritual gluttony. They resist the cross and choose pleasures like children do. The hard path of responsibility? No. And choose the ways of children and, and uh, not the way of the cross. Spiritual envy. They feel unhappy when others do well spiritually, and they're always comparing. When you're in the dark night of the soul, no one else, no one else's experience matters, but whatever Jesus is doing with you. Sloth. They run from that which is hard. Their aim is spiritual sweetness and good feelings. These are the kind of things that get dispelled in the dark night of the soul. These are all kind of false senses of security that uh, we discover are not useful in the slightest. Sorry, I just lost my place here. There it is. <clears throat> Sorry about that, my. This is the hard thing about technology. You can't live with it. You can't live without it. There it is. Let's go to our next slide. Let's look at some characteristics of going through the wall. What is it? How do you know you're there? How do you know when you maybe are at the tail end of it and passing through it? Um, I know because I was unaware that I was facing a sort of wall when I began pastoring, I didn't realize I needed to double down on my faith, and instead I just kind of spent my time overthinking. Um, and you can miss deep blessings if, if you're, when you're not aware you're in these kind of places. So the first one, first, uh, first characteristic is there is a greater level of brokenness taking place. You can go to the next slide for me. So whereas before there was pride, unholy anger, resentment, etc., there is now a humbling taking place, a stripping of all the sources that we put our pride in, 
all those things begin to dissipate. dissipate. Can you imagine that, uh, for example, a, a beggar is on the street, and he says, as you're walking by, hey, I wasn't always like this. I graduated high school. I don't like the way you're looking at me. You can keep your money. Kind of strange. I earn more money than the rest of these beggars. Look at what the other beggar on the corner is wearing. Doesn't he have any shame? It's so ironic, right? But this is kind of what we're like. We can become like, you know, Christians have, well, humans have been notoriously judgmental, right? And the a characteristic of you going through this experience and actually walking it is that you begin to go right down on the same level as everybody else with the same amount of need as everybody. Christians today may look at others pre-wall experience. I can't believe she calls herself a Christian. That denomination has a superficial faith. That church is small and dead because X, Y, Z. Look at what he's doing. He's not a Christian. This is all before. But when you come to face the, the, the darkness in you, and Jesus, as it says in uh, John 3.17, the light is shined on, for which the, those, those who embrace the dark do not go to the light because it exposes what's in there. As that happens, you begin to think, whoa, I'm much worse than I thought. And you realize everybody's in that place until we've been made perfect in Jesus. Let's move to the next characteristic. A greater appreciation for, un, the, for holy unknowing. That is the mystery of God. If you turn with me to Isaiah 55, 8-9, we find a beautiful reminder, a centering reality. 55, chapter 55 of Isaiah, verses 8 and 9. It reads, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is a, calls us to rethink how we're approaching our Christian walk in these dark times. It makes us rethink how much do we really need to know to walk forward in faith. We may have come in in moments to God saying, well, I'll obey and keep my part of the bargain. Now you bless me, God. Do not allow me any serious harm or injury or suffering. And I don't think you'll find that, pro that kind of relationship with the world for any believer in the Bible. I mean, Joseph, he did the right thing. And he was put in the wrong place. But he walked the path of Jesus, who was perfect and was also put in the wrong place at the cross. There's a greater appreciation for the unknowing. We see in Abraham's life, he was a good man. He worked hard. He loved his family. He loved his wife. He was a good boss, right? And then God says, I want you to go to a place you've never been to before. And he's like, what's the place? He's like, I just want you to go for now. There's no GPS, there's no end location, there's no reason why. He just says, Abraham, I want you to go. 
Spirit prophecy tells us that God needed to remove Abraham from his family because they were mixed with paganism and idols. And it would have threatened Abraham as the, the father of faith for generations to come. And so God had to create an isolation, a separation. He was a good son, too. He was a good brother, good man. Just because we go through hard things doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. Doesn't mean, and just because we're doing the right thing doesn't mean life's not going to get hard. But as he continued to walk this path, albeit imperfectly, he began to have an appreciation for the mystery of God, knowing that in all things, he is good. In all things, his word is certain. My salvation is anchored in the one who is eternal. Let's go to the next characteristic. A deeper ability to walk for God, walk, a wait for God. Think Moses. He, was, he found out he was supposed to be the great liberator of God's people. He knew the calling. He started to take action, and it began with murdering a man. And so he had to run, and God had him in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years of waiting. Can you imagine what that does to a mind? He, Moses had been saturated in the highest academia, political thought, um, the, the, the wisest like military minds, books, and he was just inundated with information and growth all, all his life, and suddenly to be plopped in the middle of nowhere and just be him and his thoughts for 40 years. Ellen White says in Spirit of Prophecy that he needed this to undo everything that Egypt had done in him. He needed to be away. Because you could take the man out of Egypt, but you couldn't take Egypt out of the man except by God's way. And this is what it took for, for him. Think of David. After a stunning victory, killing Goliath, a step of faith, a, miracle, uh, a, a viewing of God's favor on his people, he then becomes a fugitive, running from the wrath of Saul. And for 13 years, he waits to take that promised throne Thirteen years, year after year as a fugitive, then Saul dies, then there's years of civil war. You think, I already know the calling, can't I just go and you know, take over? When he had the chance in, the, in a cave to kill Saul, take the throne, he said, I cannot touch the Lord's anointed. He was, he was fine with waiting on the Lord. Think of Hannah, who waited for years to have a baby. Sadness pain for years and then she cries out to the lord and god gifts her a baby and then she dedicates him to jesus think of jesus waiting for the initiation of his ministry year after year no miracles no profound sermons to thousands and then all at once it seems to change and the power of the father courses through his faith in action. Let's go to our next trait. There's a greater detachment. This is an anchor, and this is what keeps a boat in place when uh, things get rocky on the, on the ocean, and it keeps them from getting off course and losing their way, right? This is what many things in our life can do to us when we're attached to material things, to careers, to money, to growth, to, re to relationships, to addictions, 
they become these attachments that we just don't want to give up. Now, there are actually a lot of good things that can become attachments. It could be like a job. It could be your marriage. It could be even my own pastoral ministry. And why do I say that good things can become objects that need to be detached of? Well, come with me to 1 Corinthians 7, 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 29. We're going through 31. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Paul is saying, look around you. God who has to do work and he wants to use you. He's going to call you to do things. Go places. And if you're attached to any of these good things and you stay there anchored, others will be left out of being introduced to Jesus. Or you yourself will not go purged of one of those seven deadly imperfections. We need to be ready to leave anything in God's hands to follow his calling. Dependence on God is the great secret of peace. Finding satisfaction, security, and belonging in God creates peace, calm, rest. Attaching to anything else disrupts that immediately. Disrupts it immediately. Now, I, I want to go to our scripture reading in Luke 4, 14. Luke 4, 14. As Jesus completed this trial, this wall, he comes out stronger. It says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. The result and outcome of you facing your biggest fears is power. God's power. And you don't turn back to look on your own anymore. It's power. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There is the sun behind the clouds. There's a beautiful view at the top of the mountain. If you just go through the wall, it might be the most painful thing. You might be kicking and screaming because you don't understand but if you keep your focus on trying to glorify God, reflect Him, love, the, the, the arms of, of eternity that have carried humanity will carry you all the way through. As the Psalm 23 says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil or destruction, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me the rest of my life. It's the privilege of those who have faith. And the world is hungry for this, right? The world is hungry for something that is stable and doesn't change and that can keep them grounded and not spiraling out into addictions or mental health disorders. Something that can keep them grounded. It doesn't break. 
Let's go to our last, one of our last slides. And that is Jesus. Because he followed that path all the way to Gethsemane. He walked right through that wall because he said, not my will, but your will, God. And God strengthened him to walk to the cross. And even in some of his last moments, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? A man of faith, Jesus, the man of faith, felt like God had forsaken him. And yet he continued to walk the path of faith. Certainly, he felt that rightfully so, for the Father's presence had been fully withdrawn from him, as Jesus had taken all the sin from, from humanity. And as uh, the Old Testament, I forget the passage, says that it's, not, your, it's uh, not that God's arm is too far that it cannot reach you, O Israel, but your sins have separated you from him. His sins create that separation. But we have that resurrection day where God's power lay on just the other side of that dark night of the soul. And he walked into to an eternity that he can bring you into now because he went through it. Next, our last slide. And one day, we will find ourselves in the heavenly courts having the memories of weeping on the floor in dependence on Jesus with our deep needs and thinking of all the times he comforted us and strengthened us and kept us focused on what we needed to do and the times we needed to do them. And he'll give us a crown. And we will throw those crowns at his feet because no one earned that crown. All those crowns were gifts based on his power. The lovely sacrifice of Jesus. And this is the part of the spiritual life. I don't know what phase you're in right now. Things might be pretty good. Or you might be in that dark night of the soul. Life is upside down. Whatever it is, the encouragement of Jesus is, fear not, for I am with you. Be very courageous. I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. I will walk with you. And uh, as Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we must rise. And whatever comes, we know it'll be enriching and it'll glorify Jesus. And we'll let Jesus lead these seasons of dark, dark times. And uh, I'll see you guys up there with all of it behind you, the cross and the grave behind, and all we do are living in a resurrection power. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we need that resurrection power. And as Christians, Lord, we believe it is available to us today. We pray for the, I claim Philippians 2.13 for us, that you would give us the desire and the strength to do what pleases you, and that we would be empowered only by you and nothing else, Lord. Please abide with us. And take us to these, these, these walls and lead us through, Lord. We, want, we don't want to be attached to the things of this world or to comfort. There's no security and no salvation in that. Lord, let our hearts cling to Jesus alone, the source of our salvation, the one who's adopted us into your, into your family. So I pray a blessing over everyone today. 
uh, that they would know your grace in a special way when they come to a wall, and that they could remember back on all the stories of the people of faith in the Bible and be inspired to lay themselves down and take up their cross and follow Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.